Okay, so from Jeremiah 6, verses 6 to 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, O Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate, so no one can live in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Let them glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as a vine. Pass your hand over the branches again, like one gathering grapes. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. Pour it out onto the children in the street, and onto the young men gathered together. Both husband and wife will be caught in it, and the old, those weighed down with years. Their houses will be turned over to others, together with their fields and their wives, when I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. And the second reading will be from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 23. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us your word and for the uh, clarity and the boldness of Jesus' uh, preaching. Father, we pray that um, you would use uh, the words from this passage to help us to be more clear-minded and more convicted of that which is right, that we would live lives that honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how many people go to your church? That's, That's a reasonably common question for Christians to ask other Christians, and I think that's quite understandable, isn't it? Because the number of people that go to your church, well, that's sort of like at 
That's one impression, that's sort of one snapshot of uh, church life and how things are going. Um, but <clears throat> is it necessarily the case that bigger equals better? Well, it might be. I mean, you know, we want people to uh, be coming to know Jesus, don't we? Uh, bigger is better if that means that uh, people, uh, that more people are trusting Jesus, they're living for God. Uh, bigger is better if it's because Christians have been inviting their non-Christian friends and, uh, and more people are becoming Christians as a result of that. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that in Acts chapter 2, uh, that uh, after the gospel was preached, that Luke uh, is quite specific in telling us that 3,000 people were added to the church on that day. I mean, how good is that? That's worth writing about, isn't it? Absolutely. Bigger can be better. But in God's eyes, numbers are not always the measure of success. Uh, because uh, for some church leaders, the popularity of their ministry uh, is more important than the truthfulness of their message. Uh, there are millions of people who tune in every day on their televisions or go online to hear uh, preachers who scratch where their ears are itching, uh, saying so much about the rewards of the Christian life and the blessings of, the, of being a Christian yet little about the cost, let alone talking about sin and judgment and repentance. And for those preachers, their popularity is guaranteed. It's a sure thing. Uh, even amongst some of the more gospel-centered churches, there is a temptation to market a product to consumers uh, rather than preach repentance to sinners. So, if our lives are going to be shaped by the values, that the kingdom values that we've been reading about in the Sermon on the Mount, then we must be clear-minded about these things, actually. And in Matthew chapter 7, uh, which you might want to open up, Jesus paints a, a vivid picture of two types of religion. He talks about two roads, two ways. Let me read to you from verse 13, Matthew 7. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Uh, so what we see there is that there are two gates, there are two roads. And guess what? There are two very different destinations. Uh, one road is uh, it's a beautiful road. It's, uh, it's very wide. It's, uh, it's uh, got lovely, smooth bitumen on it. Uh, and it, it has to be built so well and so wide and so smooth in order to cater with the large volume of traffic that's moving along this particular road. The other is narrow. Uh, it's, it's not wide, it's, it's much smaller, it's uh, bumpier, and not so many people use it. Uh, do you remember the days before GPS? <clears throat> yeah, the, the bad old days. 
the bad old days before GPS. I remember once I was driving along a road where I had to stop because of uh, roadworks. The road was closed. The detour signs were not sufficiently in place. And there were other cars in front of me and they were all doing U-turns. So I did the U-turn with them. And then they were all turned up this, this side road. So I turned up the side road with them and I followed them until it dawned on me that no one actually knew where we were going. This road did not lead to the destination I wanted to go to. Now, what is it that makes a, wo- a road worth travelling? Is it how wide it is? Is it how beautifully uh, smooth the bitumen is? It's the destination, isn't it? It's where it leads you to. Regardless of how comfortable, how pleasant, how scenic, regardless of who else is on the road. The wide road is popular. It's easy to travel. It's not very demanding, but it takes you to destruction. The narrow road, says Jesus, is much harder. Uh, and to, to, to drive along this road, to travel along this road, means that you're actually a person who has been convicted of your sin. You've, you've, you've begged for forgiveness. You've repented of sin. Uh, you've put your trust in Jesus' death for you. And you know that that means taking up your cross daily to follow him. This is not an easy road. This is like a, it's a choice between the bitumen road or the gravel road with potholes. But what counts is the destination because it's a road which leads to life, eternal life. Now, when I took the wrong turn at that roadworks, I did it because I trusted the other drivers. Um, that kind of trust is called misplaced trust. That's what that is. And sometimes our trust in those who lead us spiritually can be a misplaced trust. Because uh, church leaders, Christian leaders, have got a responsibility to guide others along the narrow path. But there are those who do the exact opposite to that. And they lead uh, multitudes of people along the road that leads to destruction. Now, what I've noticed over the years is that there are uh, some well-meaning Christians who have just a little bit of difficulty believing this. And sometimes I think it's because they're not, they're not really clear and sharp on the, uh, the gospel themselves. Um, sometimes they're, they're just naive about false teaching. They just, you know, they've got this view of life that doesn't take sin uh, into adequate account. And uh, they just think, well, you know, why would a church leader lead you astray? Uh, or there are those who think that it's unloving to make such judgments. Now, we talked about that, uh, was it last week? Uh, we talked about that last week in terms of um, uh, Matthew 7 from verse 1 and following. Very often it's all three. They're not clear on the gospel, they're a little bit naive about um, sin and, and life and they've got a wrong view of what it me- the difference between making discernments and making judgments. 
And so, therefore, the warning that Jesus gives us here is quite important. Um, verse 15, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, the question, therefore, is, well, what is a prophet? And when we think of a prophet, we think of someone who uh, foretells the future, don't we? And, and that's, that's fair enough. Uh, indeed, in the Bible, uh, the, the prophets are often um, talking about the future, um, the, the future judgment. That's a future event. When you talk about, talk about the, the day of judgment, you're actually acting as a prophet. And that, so the prophet talks about the future which involves judgment and the need that you have to get off that road, that road that leads to that destination, the need to do a U-turn, the need to turn back to God and enter into a different road, which means passing through a very narrow gate, which is the gate of faith and repentance. Now, there are some people who claim that Jesus, you know, that negative stuff like, you know, sin and judgment, that just wasn't Jesus' thing. You know, that, that's kind of like, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, that's, you know, that's the Apostle Paul. He was into that. Jesus, you know, the message of Jesus, it was all about the Sermon on the Mount. Well, guess what, folks? This is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where he speaks of future judgment. The wide road, says Jesus, leads to destruction. And this is not a claim to annihilation because there are some people who say, well, if you trust in Jesus, then you'll go to heaven when you die. But if you don't trust in Jesus, you'll just cease to exist. You'll be annihilated. And you've got to wonder, well, why would you bother repenting if that's the case? But Jesus is not talking here. When he talks about destruction, he's talking about an everlasting destruction. Now, the Apostle Paul does speak more about that in 2 Thessalonians, but it's, an ever, it's a destruction that goes on and on and on and on and on. Jesus describes it as that, that uh, state of uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire never goes out. And that's the destination. We've got to tell people about that, don't we? The uh, rugby player Israel Folau, uh, well, just a couple of weeks ago, he, well, he's been condemned for warning people about judgment. Now, the, his comments, uh, his initial comments, did need uh, fuller explanation, which is kind of hard to do on Twitter because I think Twitter allows. Was it Twitter? No, it was uh, Instagram. How many words are you allowed to? for Instagram you know it's not the purpose of Instagram to give a detailed explanation of your theology uh, but his later explanations did so and uh, this is what he said in a publication this week and I quote he says the truth can be difficult to hear I think of it this way you see someone who is about to walk into a hole and have a chance to save him he might be determined to maintain his course and doesn't want to hear what you have to say, but if you don't tell him the truth, as unpopular as it may be, he is going to fall into that hole. So what do you do? What do you do? 
Well, if you're a false prophet, you say there is no hole. Uh, you know, it's bad enough that you should be about to, hit, you know, to uh, fall into a, a hole. It's even worse that I should tell you about it to spoil the, the journey for you, you know. Um, God's, in Jeremiah, chapter, you know, the false prophet would say there is no hole, there is no judgment, there is no repentance, there is no need to trust in Jesus. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 6, which was read to us earlier on, Israel was about to fall into a very great hole. The judgment of God. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The Babylonians were coming. The Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem. They'll rip down the temple. They will take the people of, of God's people out of the promised land and into exile in Babylon. And this is Jeremiah's message. This is what he's been preaching. This is what the, the word that God has given to him. And yet all along, the false prophets have been saying, no, there's, there's no need to worry. She'll be right. Too easy. Because of their greed, their deceitfulness, they've been enjoying the spoils of sin. They've been enjoying the spoils of sin so much, they don't want it to stop. Peace, peace, they say, says Jeremiah, when there is no peace. The wide road is very nice. Whilst the true prophets were hated because they preached judgment and repentance. Now, that's the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament tells us that there is such a thing as false prophets. And uh, if you turn, for example, in your Bibles, or you don't need to turn to it, I think if this technology works okay, um, 2 Peter chapter 2, let me read to you what Peter says. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people. That's Old Testament. Just as there will be, this is future tense, false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. They will deny Jesus. They will deny his deity. They'll deny his atoning death on the cross. They'll deny his resurrection. They'll deny that he's coming again. They'll deny that you need to turn your life over to him. Many will follow, says Peter, their shameless ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed... These false, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they've made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Wow. See, Peter warns that we should expect false teachers uh, who will lead us not through a gateway, which is the gospel of Jesus, but through some other gateway. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that <clears throat> false teachers can be a little bit difficult sometimes to, to spot. Um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, um, the Apostle Paul says that false teachers are servants of Satan. Now, what do you reckon? If you were a servant of Satan, <clears throat> would you put that on your T-shirt? Would you wear a badge? You know, would you advertise the fact that... No, of course not. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 7, 
Jesus warns that they will, they will sneak into the flock, disguised as, as sheep. That is, they'll look like us. They'll look normal. They'll look believable. And they, they will look like the real thing. And sometimes they can do a pretty good job of that. Uh, they, can, they, they might be people that know all of the right uh, lingo. They'll be able to say enough about God and Jesus to seem believable. Uh, they, they may have great um, theological qualifications. They might hold ecclesiastical titles. They might be ordained ministers. They might even be leading large dynamic churches. And you know what? The better their disguise, the more people that they can lead astray. So how can we spot them? Well, the Bible has much to say about that. But here, Jesus gives us two ways. Uh, Firstly, it is by what they preach. They don't preach the narrow way. Which means... That often it's, often it's not the case that they overtly teach stuff that's obviously false doctrine. Uh, sometimes they do. But uh, very often it's not what they do say, it's, not, it's rather what they don't say about God. Uh, they don't preach against sin. So therefore they don't warn against judgment. And if there's no judgment, well there's no need to call on people to repent and if there's no need for repentance then well the death and the resurrection of Jesus is not really central to their message why should it be if there is no judgment and so they lull people into a false spirituality and a false sense of eternal security secondly We can identify them by their fruit. Verse 16. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognise them. Uh, Apparently, there was a particular thorn bush which which grew a little black berry. And from a distance, it looked a whole lot like grapes. Um, There was also a thistle which grew a flower, which, if you didn't look closely, could be mistaken for a fig. So from a distance, it looked like it was good fruit, But you need to get up close. You need to look at it closely. And it's the same with false prophets because from a distance their ministry can appear very impressive. But take a closer look at the fruit. Take a closer look at the fruit in their own lives. And the fruit, when the Bible talks about fruit, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Um, Take a look, you know, are their own lives characterised by that sweet fruit of the Spirit, uh, like humility and gentleness and godliness and a desire for the next world, not a desire for this world. And it's 
things. The kind of fruit which, which actually flows from a heart which is thankful to God for the forgiveness that Jesus has given. Is that fruit evident in their own lives? By the way, it's an aside, I think that's a good reason why it's good to get to know your Christian leaders well and not to be relying on guys you hear on the internet and books you read where you can't actually know how they're living their lives. But secondly, do they teach and model that kind of ministry um, to others so that others over time who are those who are receiving their ministry will also be bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Or do they produce unhealthy churches? Do they produce thorns and thistles? Now, these days there are some very popular preachers whose message I think is... uh, I think it's really motivational speaking... Um, which is infused with enough Christianity to make it seem like it's the real thing. Um, I heard a preacher say in his sermon, I quote, he said, My passion is to help businessmen fulfil their business potential for Christ. What do you think of that? Now, see, I... I think that um, it is really good for Christian leaders to be helping people in the workplace to fulfil their potential for Christ within their workplace. Um, uh, I think it's good uh, for someone, if he was to help Christian businessmen to to do that, to uh, speak to them about... um, what the Bible teaches, uh, not to place your hope in the things of this life, but to be placing your hope in, in the next life. Uh, not to be greedy for money, not to fall in the, into the traps, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which lead people to actually walk away from the Lord. Uh, how, do, how do you treat your, uh, your staff and your customers uh, in a godly manner in, in your job? Uh, how do you uh, act with integrity and uprightness in a business world that uh, has a propensity to cause you to slip into all sorts of temptations? That's the sort of thing that you'd want to be teaching businessmen so that they can actually stand up for truth, for the righteousness and the godliness of Christ in their context, which is what you'd want to teach to any Christian working in whatever profession. But that's not what he was on about. Whereas Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, it's no surprise to us that such leaders live um, lavish lifestyles that are far above the norm of society. What is intriguing is that it's more often the non-Christians that can see the problems with that than the people that are under their teaching. Then, of course, there is the wicked reality of church leaders um, committing despicable sins against vulnerable people who have been entrusted into their care. 
What does Jesus say? By their fruit, you will know them. You will know that they are not the real thing, that they never have been the real thing, and we need to be alert to that. But sometimes our ability to spot the wolf is impaired because we are so impressed by them. And it's particularly a danger when what we are impressed by is the spiritual experiences which seem to happen through such people. Um, Take a look at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Um, That is... Um, It's not what you say, it's what you do that counts. He goes on, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. That's impressive. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And you think to yourself, well, well, how can that be? I mean, here's this person, this man, this woman, they're they're so impressive and God is doing such great things through them and Jesus claims to have never known them. How can someone who does these things not be right with God? I mean, isn't the the miracles the evidence that they are? Well, a couple of points here. Firstly, In the Bible, God does sometimes use unbelievers to do his work, um, to even prophesy. Think about um, Balaam in the Old Testament. Balaam, uh, God, in Numbers 23, God placed words of truth into Balaam's mouth to speak, like true words, but yet Balaam himself was an unbeliever. Balaam was condemned. Uh, In John chapter 11, the high priest, Caiaphas, well, he was hardly a believer, but he prophesied. uh, John says that he actually prophesied when he said of Jesus that it was better for one man to die than for the whole nation. And uh, John expands on that, that he was prophesying that uh, uh, what was good for Israel, what was good for the whole world. He was hardly a believer. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent his 12 disciples out on a mission, we are told that Jesus gave them authority to drive out demons and to heal the sick. And yet one of those 12 was named Judas Iscariot. Indeed, God may even use the lips of an unbeliever to tell someone the truth of the gospel and draw them to Jesus. See, on the day of judgment, you know, we might say to God, well, hey, I led others to Jesus. I did lots of good things. There was lots of fantastic things happened as a result. But the real question is, did you believe and obey that which you taught to others? That's the real question. Secondly, these miracles may actually be the work of Satan. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus warned that false prophets would appear 
and would perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive the elect if that were at all possible. See, the miracles at that point, they're like an exit ramp. You're heading along the narrow road and there's this exit ramp that looks very attractive and you get on that exit ramp, it'll merge you in with the, uh, the traffic that's flowing on the wider road. So that the impressive miracles end up becoming the focus of our faith rather than Christ crucified for our sins. In the 4th century AD, there were quite a few false teachers who taught that Jesus was not God. And this was one of the big debates in the 4th century about the humanity and the deity of Christ and how that all worked out. And in, the, in that context, where at times it looked like those who were claiming that Jesus was not God were winning the day, winning the hearts and the minds of people, there was one true leader whose name was Athanasius. And at one time, he felt so very alone in defending the truth about Christ. Uh, and he was advised to give up. Uh, because his advisers said to him that, and I quote, the whole world is against you. So drop it. The whole world is against you. To which Athanasius replied, well then, Athanasius is against the whole world. Although he knew that God was with him and Athanasius plus God is a pretty big team. But the point is that the narrow road can be pretty lonely at times. Um, and sometimes you and I, we're going to feel the, um, the pressure to, to soften the truths, uh, to soften those truths which do not align with what our culture wants to hear and what is acceptable and what is politically correct. Um, Truths such as the truthfulness of God's word. That, you know, you can actually believe the Bible and stake your life on it. Uh, Truths such as the truth that Jesus is actually God. It wasn't just a man who was a moral teacher and a failed revolutionary. The truth of sin and judgment. And softening these truths may make life easier for us, uh, may make us less unpopular and more palatable, but softening these truths gives no reason for anyone to exit the wide road. No reason to get off that road. and No reason to enter the narrow gate of God's forgiveness in the death of his son. I guess it boils down to this. Day of judgment, you meet Jesus. What are the words that you want to hear come from his mouth to you? Away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. I think I'd rather hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, wouldn't you? Amen to that. Let's pray. Faithful, uh, Heavenly Father, we 
thank you for the clarity of what Jesus is saying here. And we pray that you would uh, help us to be clear that we need to be off that wide road and onto that narrow yet sometimes difficult road that leads to eternal life. Help us, Lord God, uh, not to be naive about sin and the world, uh, that we would be those who would be careful to, uh, uh, to watch out for false prophets and uh, to uh, not believe what they teach, um, but to remain firm in what your word says. We pray, I guess more than anything, that we would not become like those false prophets, um, watering down uh, the truth of your word for the sake of the enjoyable wide road. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scott for that challenging sermon and something to really grab hold on this week as we go into a new week and with that we're going to sing this really rousing uh, hymn we have heard the joyful sound so let's stand and sing we have heard the joyful sound Jesus saves Jesus saves <laughs> 